Hello and welcome to episode 35 of the Educating Investors Podcast. My name is Scott Peterson, Financial Advisor of Harmony Wealth Management. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode, Rising Interest Rates in the Markets. I believe that educated investors equal successful investors. The goal of this podcast is to help to educate as many individuals as possible on the markets, the economy, and financial planning topics. In this episode, I'm going to take a look at the recent rise in interest rates and what they mean for the economy and the markets. Let's start with the recent move in interest rates. The Federal Reserve has pegged their policy rate at zero through the end of 2023 based on their latest economic projections from December. The Fed will be meeting on March 16th and 17th and will release their latest economic projections. The FOMC will likely make no changes in current policy instead maintaining its near zero overnight Fed funds rate target and its current $120 billion in monthly security purchases. It will be interesting to see if they move up the timeline to when they are looking at raising the Fed funds rate with the positive economic data that has been released recently. They stated at their last meeting in January that the committee decided to keep the target range for the Fed funds rate at zero to a quarter percent and expects it will be appropriate to maintain this target range until labor market conditions have reached levels consistent with the committee's assessments of maximum employment and inflation has risen to two percent is on track to moderately exceed 2% for some time. The Federal Reserve has control of the short end of the yield curve by making changes to the Fed funds rate. They have less control than the market has on the longer-term rates. At the end of 2020's third quarter, the 10-year Treasury yield was at 0.7%. On February 16th, it was 1.3%, a 60 basis point increase. The Nasdaq rose 21% over that span. Then bond yields went from 1.3% to 1.6% between February 16th and March 8th. That's a 30 base, basis point move in less than a month. The NASDAQ tank dropping 10%. Even after its recent jump, the 10-year Treasury yield at 1.62% is still 0.30% below the level at which it started 2020. Why have long-term interest rates been moving higher? The combination of very easy monetary policy and expansive fiscal policy is shifting the outlook for interest rates higher. With the prospects for economic growth and inflation picking up and the Federal Reserve willing to let the economy run hot for a period of time, investors are beginning to demand higher yields to compensate for the risk of rising interest rates. This dynamic is not just in play in the U.S., but around the world, especially in those countries that were more aggressive in virus containment and vaccine deployment. Those countries have seen the largest increase in yields this year because the good news that comes from increased vaccine distribution has been reflected in increased growth and inflation expectations, which have been the primary reason interest rates around the world have moved higher. Countries such as New Zealand and Australia that implemented more restrictive measures early on and are now on track to fully reopen sooner have seen their yields increase back to pre-pandemic levels. The U.S., Canada, and Germany are countries that haven't seen yields fully retrace their pandemic declines, which suggests that yields could continue to rise to these previous levels as further vaccine deployment takes place. Will yields continue to rise? Everything held equal, a rebounding economy with increasing inflation expectation and a large supply of new debt should lead to higher interest rates and a steeper yield curve as the Fed holds the Fed fund rate near zero. The first factor in the continuing increasing of yields is the flood of new debt. The increase in debt has come from trillions of dollars that the government are spending to support the global economy during the coronavirus pandemic, as well as the reopening of the economy from the pandemic. According to Bank of America Global Research, net new supply of 2- to 30-year treasuries is expected to reach $2.8 trillion this year, up from $1.7 trillion last year, 
and around $990 billion in 2019. The Fed, meanwhile, is expected to purchase $960 billion of Treasury, down from more than $2 trillion last year. The $960 billion of Treasury's purchases are from the $80 billion of Treasuries that they are currently purchasing monthly. The Congressional Budget Office projected this year's deficit to reach $2.3 trillion, but that did not include the recent passage of the American Rescue Plan of $1.9 trillion. It doesn't stop there either. The Biden administration has signaled interest in another multi-trillion dollar spending package to update the country's infrastructure. Investors are also worried about the timing of when the Fed could start scaling back its monthly purchases of Treasury once the economy picks up momentum, putting even more bonds in circulation. They will look to begin scaling back their asset purchases before they start to normalize the Fed funds rate. The continued increase in Treasury issues will need to attract buyers for additional supply, which means higher interest rates. The net treasury issuance is much larger than the amount of, that the Fed is currently purchasing. The impact of the excess of supply of treasuries can be seen in some of the recent treasury auctions. Treasury yields spiked after a brutal seven-year auction on February 25th. According to Bloomberg data, the Treasury Department reported $2.04 of bids for every dollar sold, the lowest since at least 2009. The auction sold at a higher yield than the pre-auction trading had indicated. Primary dealers, the government's counterparty that are required to bid at Treasury auctions, bought 40% of the sale. Bloomberg goes on to state that there was an especially sharp decline in demand from foreign investors. They bought just 8% of the auction, a record low, and well below the long-term average of 19% since 2009. Finally, Bloomberg said U.S.-based investment funds also bid less. They bought 49% of the February 7th year sale, which is higher than their long-term average of 44%, but was a step down from the past five years when they bought an average of 57% of each of seven-year sales. The only net buyer of Treasury bonds has been the Fed, causing a lack of robust and normal organic demand. Currently, the Fed is the buyer of last resort. Recently, central bankers from Australia, the Eurozone, and Japan came out and confirmed their desire for low interest rates and easy financial conditions. As a result, we saw yields in those countries come down a bit. There seems to be a game of chicken between central bankers and the market as it comes to bond yields. question is, at what level of interest rates would the Fed decide that they need to step in to keep them from moving higher to keep financial conditions easy for the economy to continue to recover? The next factor in increasing interest rates is a rebounding economy. The global economy should look to recover this year and next year with the help of vaccination, fiscal stimulus, and easy monetary policy. We are starting to see a pickup in vaccinations with new vaccines being approved. Some countries are doing better than others, but with production of vaccines picking up, eventually most individuals, especially in the developed world, will have access to a vaccine. In order for the global economy to continue to see growth pick up, global vaccinations will have to continue to pick up due to the fact of the, of the global nature of the world economy. For example, countries that rely on tourism will not be able to return to growth without the return of tourism, which can only truly return with vaccinations. The amount of fiscal stimulus programs implemented by countries has helped their economies during and through the recovery from the pandemic. This fiscal stimulus has helped to put funds into the hands of individuals directly through programs such as stimulus payments and extended unemployment benefits, etc. This has allowed the individuals the ability to survive while the economy was shut down due to the virus, as well as leading to an increase in their savings as well as pay down of debt. This has helped to put the consumer in a better position coming out of the pandemic. On top of the fiscal stimulus, central banks around the world provided easy monetary policy to help the global economy through and as we come out of the pandemic. Major central banks around the world lowered or cut policy rates near zero or lower, along with major asset purchase programs to keep longer-term interest rates lower as well. 
The last reason for rising interest rates is increasing inflation expectations. When the market believes that inflation is rising, that inflation could potentially be an issue, and you have a Fed that is completely dovish, the bond market is going to tighten for them. The Fed has stated that they are going to let the economy and inflation run hot until they decide to start tapering their asset purchases and eventually the normalization of the Fed funds rate. Due to this, inflation expectations have started to increase. Currently, the 5-year break-even inflation rate is around 2.54% and the 10-year break-even inflation rate is around 2.27%. Shorter-term break-even rates are higher than the longer-term ones, an extremely rare situation known as an inversion of the break-even curve. This forecasts a short-term move in inflation and then inflation falling off. Whether this is temporary or longer-term inflation depends on whether the factors for higher or lower inflations went out. Forces that could push inflation higher over the long term included a continued dollar depreciation, money printing followed by an increase in the velocity of money, supply chain constraints, ongoing deglobalization, a tighter labor market, and the Fed committing to overshooting its inflation target. The forces that could push inflation lower over the long term include a weak economy, weak labor markets, an older demographic, technologies including robots and automation, the rise of unproductive zombie companies, and more government debt holding back growth. I believe at this time that the factors for lower inflation over the longer term are stronger than those for higher inflation. Therefore, I see a short-term uptick in inflation due to easier year-over-year comparisons and pent-up demand for services that will eventually end and revert back to lower inflation with lower interest rate and slower economic growth. Increases in foreign purchases and certain Fed monetary policy tools could help to slow the pace of yields moving higher. An increase in foreign purchases of treasuries could help to put pressure on yields to potentially move lower. However, over the last 10 plus years, the net foreign purchases of U.S. government debt has been decreasing to the point they have been net sellers of U.S. government debt since around 2016. Foreign demand may eventually pick back up if investors in Europe and Japan seek out stronger relative yields in the U.S., though currency fluctuation and hedging costs will also play a role in demand. According to data from the Wall Street Journal, overseas demand for treasuries in particular could strengthen. Investors in the Eurozone and Japan are getting a negative return of 0.3 and 0.1% respectively for buying their own ultra-safe 10-year government bonds. Even after the cost of currency hedging, the 1.5% available on U.S. bonds give them a full percentage point more yield than their domestic bonds, which is the most in four years. The Fed has some monetary policy tools that it can use to try to slow the pace of interest rates rising. The Fed can use forward guidance to try and talk down rising rates. The U.S. Central Bank hasn't signaled an intention to reduce the pace of its bond purchases soon. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell has reiterated that point multiple times. However, rates have continued to rise. The more dovishy has sounded, the higher long rates have gone. The Fed is stuck in a tough situation. The more dovish they sound, the more the bond market is going to tighten for them, as long as the bond market sees these inflation pressures intensifying. In order for the Fed to get back control of interest rates, the Fed would actually have to sound more hawkish, which could lead to a sell-off in risk assets. Another tool that they can use is a continuation of the suspension of the SLR requirement for banks. During the pandemic, the Fed initiated an emergency policy to exclude cash and treasuries from bank supplementary leverage ratios, a key regulatory measure. Doing so would give them more capacity to gather deposits and buy government bonds. If the Fed does not extend this policy, which is set to expire on March 31st, there might be even more upward pressure on yields in the Treasury market. The next tool in the Fed's toolbox would be the use of Operation Twist. 
Operation Twist is a Federal Reserve Monetary Policy Initiative used in the past to lower long-term interest rates to further stimulate the U.S. economy when traditional monetary policy tools were lacking via the time purchase and sale of U.S. Treasuries at different maturities. The term gets its name from the simultaneous buying of long-term bonds and selling short-term bonds, suggesting a twisting of the yield curve and creating a more flat yield curve. Fed has used Operation Twist twice in 1961 and then again between September 2011 and December 2012. 10-year Treasury yields fell from 3.75% in February 2011 to the low of 1.44% right in the middle of Operation Twist 2 in July 2012. The last tool potentially in their toolbox would be the use of yield curve control. Yield curve control has been used in the past by the Fed. Yield curve control involves targeting a longer-term interest rate by a central bank than buying or selling as many bonds as necessary to hit that rate target. During the massive borrowing by the U.S. government during World War II, the Fed initiated yield curve control between 1942 and 1947. The Fed kept the government borrowing costs down by purchasing any government bond that yielded more than certain targeted rates. In 1942, the Fed and Treasury internally agreed that the Fed would cap the Treasury's borrowing costs by buying any government bond that yielded above a certain level at that time, about a half a percent on three-month Treasury bills and two and a half percent on longer-term bonds. Until around 1947, the Fed was able to maintain these pegs without having to buy up large amounts of bonds. The Bank of Japan, the BOJ, initiated yield curve control on their tenure in 2016. Under its policy of yield curve control, the BOJ guides short-term rates at a negative 0.1% and 10-year Japanese government bond yields around zero. They switch from quantitative easing to yield curve control. The BOJ has been purchasing bonds at a slower pace than under QE. The Reserve Bank of Australia, the central bank of Australia, is currently using yield curve control and is targeting its three-year government bonds at a yield of 0.25%. Could the Fed increase the size of their QE to help reduce interest rates? The Fed could increase the purchases to correspond with a larger amount of debt issuance. However, the problem is when the Fed has utilized QE interest rates have gone up, not down. If yields continue to rise, how would this impact the stock market? According to data from LPL Research, rising rates are usually bullish for stocks. Historically, the S&P 500 index has advanced during extended rising rate periods almost 80% of the time, and there are some positive signs that stocks may tolerate the current rising rate environment well. The S&P 500 has tended to perform better in rising rate environments when the starting point for rising rates is low, when we are not in an extended period of high inflation, and rising rates are accompanied by a strong yield curve steepening. Looking back again at different rising rate periods, LPL research found during the four periods with the highest initial 10-year Treasury yield, the S&P 500 averaged a 2.5% annualized return, while those with the fourth lowest initial yields averaged 15.4%. They go on to state that the lower initial yield likely reflects manageable inflation and a Fed that isn't tightening, but also represents the added economic support of a still low cost of borrowing even as rates rise. According to research of LPL, rising rates during periods of high inflation have generally resulted in lower stock returns. From 1968 to 1990, the Consumer Price Index rose an average of 6.2% per year and was above 3.5% every year except three. Five of the rising rate periods that took place at least partially during those inflationary years. The average annual return during those rising rate periods was negative 0.4%. During all other rising rate periods, the average annual return was 13%, well above the average for all returns since 1962. 
in terms of the steepening yield curve, according to research from LPL, during the four rising rate periods that saw the least yield curve steepening is measured by the difference between the 10-year and three-month Treasury yields. The S&P 500 index returns were weaker than for a typical period, averaging an annualized 3.5% return. In the four periods when the yield curve steepened the most, the S&P 500 averaged an annualized 14.5%. While yield curve steepening has not yet been dramatic enough to make its way into the top four periods historically, they have seen considerable steepening already. With the Fed likely on hold for some time anchoring the short-term end of the curve, they expect that if rates continue to rise, it will come with further steepening. So based on the data from LPL research, stocks have tended to perform well with rising rates if the starting point for rising rates are low, when there is not an extended period of high inflation, and rising rates come along with a steepening yield curve. All these factors tend to be in place now as we look at the economy and markets. However, certain areas of markets tend to be more impacted by higher yields. Investors fear rising rates for two reasons. First, they make it harder to finance businesses. Higher interest expense means bondholders and not stockholders get a bit more of the company's cash. Second, they reduce the value of future cash flow and dividends, hitting growth stocks especially hard. According to JP Morgan, the sectors that are most highly correlated to 10-year yields include financial, industrials, material, and energy. It's no coincidence that as rates on the 10-year have been rising, that these sectors have started to lead in terms of returns, while those sectors with lower correlations to the 10-year Treasury yield, like technology, have had a more difficult time. Technology stocks in particular could be hit by further increases in yield as their future returns are more speculative and long-term. In other words, they are longer-duration assets. Year-to-date S&P 500 sector performance shows that those sectors with higher correlations to the 10-year Treasury yield as they move higher have outperformed those sectors that have a lower correlation to the 10-year Treasury yields. Interest rates level in and of themselves aren't the sole cause of every market movement. They are just one factor among many that impact how people allocate their assets. However, I believe it is important for investors to understand why certain sectors of their equity exposure are being impacted by rising interest rates. A steepening yield curve due to longer-term rates moving higher as the Fed pegs the Fed funds rate at zero should lead to small caps performing better than large cap stocks. Small caps tend to perform well at the beginning stages of an economic recovery. Also, the makeup of the S&P 500, a large-cap market-weighted index, and the S&P 600, a small-cap market-weighted index, are quite different. The S&P 500 largest sector includes technology, which has a low correlation to rising yields, where the S&P 600 has more exposure to financials, energy, industrials, and materials that have a higher correlation to rising 10-year Treasury yields. This is another reason why the small-cap index has outperformed the large-cap index as rates have risen. Value and growth has a similar dynamic. Value stocks tend to get more of their cash flow and earnings near term, where growth companies tend to get more of their cash flow and earnings further into the future. Also, the sectors in the value index versus those in the growth index tend to have a higher correlation to 10-year treasury yields moving higher. Therefore, value stocks tend to outperform growth stocks in a rising interest rate environment. So what does an investor do after going through this data? The data shows the importance of not being too overweight to U.S. equities, to international, large cap to small cap, and growth to value. This shows the value of having a well-diversified portfolio that can hedge the risk of interest rates or different times in an economic cycle. If we take a look at how higher interest rates impact fixed income, investors must start with duration. Duration is a measure of sensitivity of the price of a bond or other debt instruments to a change in interest rates. As a general rule, for every 1% change in interest rates, increase or decrease, a bond price will change approximately 1% in the opposite direction for every year of duration. 
So everything held equal, shorter duration bonds will lose less principal value as rates move higher than longer duration bonds. Bonds with higher interest rates can better make up for the loss of principal as rates move higher versus those with lower interest rates due to the higher income coming in. However, in order to get bonds with higher interest rates, the investor would need to look at more aggressive areas of fixed income, such as high yield and floating rate bonds that take on additional credit risk, which actually has a higher correlation to the stock market than it does the fixed income market. Investors need to remember that the two risks that they need to diversify from in fixed income is interest rate risk and credit risk. More aggressive fixed income with higher yields and shorter duration fixed income can help hedge interest rate risk, while core fixed income like government bonds can help to diversify credit risk. Just like with equities, investors should have a well-diversified portfolio to hedge both risk. Finally, the most important reason that investor needs to own fixed income is to hedge the risk of risk assets like equities when they are not performing well. Even though fixed income prices go down as interest rates move higher, for most areas of fixed income, investors should look to rebalance the fixed income when prices are down just as they would add equities based on their allocation when prices of equity are lower. Remember, higher yields over time is good for fixed income because the majority of returns that a fixed income investor receives over time comes from the income, not from principal appreciation. So in conclusion, the combination of very easy monetary policy and an expansive fiscal policy is shifting the outlook for interest rates higher. With the prospects for economic growth and inflation picking up and the Federal Reserve willing to let the economy run hot for a period of time, investors are beginning to demand higher yields to compensate for the risk of rising interest rates. Reasons why yields could continue to move higher include the flood of new debt issue and the continued recovery of the global economy due to fiscal stimulus, easier monetary policy, an increasing level of vaccinations, and increasing inflation expectations. Increasing foreign purchases along with implementation of Fed tools such as further forward guidance to talk down rates, the extension of the suspension of the SLR requirement for banks, the use of operation twist or yield curve control that is currently being used in Japan and Australia, could help to slow the pace of interest rates moving higher. Stocks tend to perform well in a rising rate environment when the starting point for rising rates is low and we are not in an extended period of high inflation and rising rates are accompanied by a strong yield curve steepening. Currently, all three of these factors are in place. Those sectors that are most highly correlated to 10-year yields, including financials, industrials, material, and energy, have actually performed better than those sectors such as technology, which has a lower correlation to 10-year yields. A steepening yield curve due to longer-term rates moving higher as the Fed pegs the Fed funds rate at zero should lead to small caps performing better than the large cap stocks. The makeup of the S&P 500 and the S&P 600 are quite different. The S&P 500 largest sectors include technology, which has a low correlation to rising yield, where the S&P 600 has more exposure to financials, energy, industrials, and materials that have a higher correlation to rising 10-year treasury yields. This is another reason why the small cap index has outperformed the large cap index as rates have risen. The sector makeup of value and growth indexes in the U.S. stock and foreign stock markets have also led to value outperforming growth year to date, with 10-year yields moving higher. In terms of fixed income, shorter duration bonds will lose less principal value as rates move higher than longer duration bonds. Bonds with higher interest rates can better make up for the loss of principal as rates move higher versus those with lower interest rates due to the higher income coming in. Investors need to remember that the two risks that they need to diversify from in fixed income is interest rate and credit risk. More aggressive fixed income with higher yields and shorter duration fixed income can help hedge interest rate risk, while core fixed income like government bonds can help to diversify credit risk. 
Just like with equities, investors should have a well-diversified portfolio to help to hedge versus both risk. And finally, the most important reason that investors need to own fixed income is to hedge the risk of risk assets like equities when they are not performing well. Remember, higher yield over time is good for fixed income because a majority of return that a fixed income investor receives over time comes from the income, not from principal appreciation. The Fed is meeting Tuesday and Wednesday this week. Chairman Powell will be holding a press conference and they will be releasing their most recent economic projection Wednesday afternoon. I want investors to be aware that the markets could be volatile with what I've said at the press conference and release of these projections. In my next podcast episode, I will look to decipher the Fed's projections and the Fed meeting and what it means for the markets. This completes this episode of the Educating Investors podcast. I know that time is an important asset for everybody, so I appreciate you taking part of your day to listen. If you enjoyed the content of this podcast, feel free to share this with other friends and family that may be interested. Also, feel free to check out my website at www.harmonywealthmanagement.com to learn more about what I do as well as to find my contact information and link to my LinkedIn page and blog. The Educating Investors podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The information presented on the Educating Investors podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The Educating Investors podcast, as host Scott Peterson and his firm Harmony Wealth Management LLC, should not be held liable for any losses resulted from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on the Educating Investors podcast show.